Worship is a response to God's invitation. And that's a spectacular invitation. Jesus saying, come to me. And that's really what we seek to do every week. This week we have an opportunity to do it again. Last Sunday, if you were here, you heard Paul Goebel preach a sermon on divorce. After one of the services, a friend greeted me in the hallway and said, hey, I noticed we skipped the lust passage. Are we skipping that? And I said, no, actually, it's not a skipping issue. It's more of a scheduling issue, and I'm preaching on it next week. And she said, oh, I'll pray for you. (laughs) I said, thank you. Welcome her prayers and your prayers this morning, even as we pray as pastors for you as we prepare and preach. I wanted to say that also to let parents know. I know there's not a lot of little children here at 11, but just for parents to know that we are talking about lust this morning. We're going to do that honestly, but also with discretion. And so just wanted you to be aware of that so you are not caught off guard. Uh, Let me pray for us as we transition to God's word. Father, we thank you for the beautiful invitation to come to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all the beauty, the the windows that you've given us this morning already to see that you are beautiful and more beautiful than anything else and certainly more beautiful than our sin. Would you help us to be captivated again by Christ that we might in our hearts long to turn away from sin and turn to you for the greatest and the sweetest and the true joy that you have to offer us. For we pray In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand as we turn to God's word. We continue our series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, and our passage is Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Imagine this is your first Sunday with us. Imagine that this is your first time to hear teaching from the Bible. If that is your case, actually, welcome. I'm sorry if it feels awkward, but if you are in that boat, you might think, wow, what the world says about Christians is right as you look at this passage. Christians are so weird about love and sexuality and marriage. And I just want to say, if you're thinking that this morning, You're not alone and you're not the first one. People have actually been thinking that about Christianity since the beginning. And in Mere Christianity, which was actually published in 1952, think about that. C.S. Lewis wrote, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or total abstinence. So what Jesus says about lust and sexual sin is so different from the world we live in, that we must either conclude that something is really wrong with Christianity or something is really wrong with us. So the Holy Spirit's task this morning, I know I can't do it, is to convince us that the world has been lying to us about all these things and that Jesus is actually telling the truth. It's not blessed are those who lust for they shall see whatever they want. Jesus says earlier in this chapter, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And the question is, do we believe that? That to be pure in heart would be the real and true joy because we get to see God who is the real and true beauty. And do we believe that in following him and his ways that our relationships will be more joyful? Whether we're single or married, male or female, all kinds of people struggle with lust. So this passage can land heavy on us. But I just want to say as we start, Jesus says these things because he loves us. And he wants us to experience relationships as he intended. And he offers grace and healing wherever you're coming from. But we have to be honest about our sin. And as we just heard in song, we need to respond and come to him. So the first thing I want us to see is that we have a good desire for love, a good desire for union. If you look at verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Straight from the Ten Commandments. And what I want you to see is there is a glorious positive behind this strong negative. Jesus strongly opposes adultery because he strongly supports marriage. And this is the Bible's position. The Bible consistently affirms the goodness of love and marriage and intimacy in that context. And most of us love weddings. We're captivated by them, but it's fascinating. The God of the Bible seems to love weddings too. And we could actually tell the whole story of the Bible through the theme of marriage, and it's spectacular. If you think about it, even before creation, there was relationship, there was union. And this is where Christianity is unique. In John 17, 25, it's like Jesus opens the window to eternity past as he prays to the Father and he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before creation, we can imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfect relationship of love and joy and unity. And that love spills over into creation. And what do we get after creation? Almost immediately, we get a wedding in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. This picture of husband and wife in a perfect garden, naked and unashamed, in perfect union with God and with one another. But paradise was lost. Why? Because we're sinful. And the Bible talks about that sin like adultery. That since Genesis 3, we have had this thing in our hearts where we love other things more than we love the Lord. But for some reason, God wouldn't throw us away. The glory of the gospel, in the fullness of time, the Father sent his Son to be the faithful bridegroom. It's what Paul was preaching about last week. And at the climax of the story, what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross to purchase a bride for himself. In Ephesians 5, we read Paul saying, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you ask that passage why, Paul basically says, to make the church a pure and spotless bride. There's never been a more beautiful or more scandalous marriage than Christ and his church. And after dying, Jesus rose again. And why did he rise again? You could say to defeat every enemy that would separate us from being with him now and forever. And then what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit to fill us and renew us so that he would be with us, that he could be in us and we could be in him so we could be the bride of Christ united with him in a breathtaking way. And if that's not enough, the ultimate climax of the story, if you get to Revelation 19 or 21, those parts of the end of the, the Bible, the marriage of Christ with his bride in the new heaven and the new earth. So why do weddings take center stage in the Bible? Because God loves his people and wants to be with them forever. 
And so he gave us human marriage to be like a signpost pointing to that greater reality so that whether we're married or not, we could have that greatest reality that we are the bride of Christ. The ultimate marriage is one God, one people for eternity. So our marriages reflect that in being one man and one woman for a lifetime. And it's not a consumer relationship, it's a covenant. And within that covenant, we have the security so that love and intimacy can soar and new life can grow. But without that covenant, we lack the foundation to hold the weight of all that goodness and all that glory. People tend to think, like we suggested at the beginning, that it's our vision of marriage and sexuality that's one of the most offensive things about Christianity, that God is this cosmic killjoy just out to steal our fun. But the truth is the exact opposite. And when you see this vision, you can actually see this might be one of the most appealing things about Christianity. God is the ultimate source of all joy and all pleasure. Think about Psalm 1611. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so the Bible joyfully celebrates intimacy, sexuality in the context of marriage because it was God's very good design. And it points to an even greater reality. You put that together and you realize Jesus is anti-adultery. Jesus is anti-lust because he's so pro-marriage. If we don't see the good of God's design, we won't understand the evil of lust. The devil has never invented a single pleasure. All he can do is take the good gifts of God and try to twist them and pervert them so that they become a mess. So we can't take what God has created and call it bad. That's one way to fight the Christian fight. Just take some, say, that's bad, so I just won't touch it. But no, we have good desires for love and union. When we see that, then we can see the real problem. The disordered desire of lust. That's the second point. And if you look at verse 28, you see Jesus speaking to it. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you remember in this section, Jesus is taking on specific things after saying in Matthew 5, 20, that our righteousness has to exceed that of the the scribes and the Pharisees. We have to be more righteous than these most righteous people. (laughs) And now he's applying that to this area of our life. The problem with the religious leaders' righteousness is they just focused on the surface. They just focused on the externals. So they looked at the seventh commandment and they said, okay, it says don't commit adultery. So as long as you haven't committed adultery, you've kept the law, you're good. And they totally missed the heart behind the commandment. They conveniently ignored the 10th commandment right after the seventh, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now that goes beyond the surface. That gets to the heart. And Jesus is after our hearts. So Jesus helping us see lust is the heart sin underneath adultery that may eventually lead to adultery. But even if it never leads to adultery, our lust is still a serious sin. And in a sense, it's more dangerous because it's pretty hard to hide adultery, but it's easy to hide lust. So whether we've committed adultery or not, Jesus wants us to know that when we look at a person lustfully, we've already committed adultery with them in our hearts. In our hearts, it's like we've already gone there. Our thoughts and our affections condemn us, even if our actions don't. So Jesus is setting the standard of perfect purity so high so that we would have no room to be self-righteous and think that we can do this because he wants us to, to know that we need his righteousness to change us and renew us. If you want to define lust, what are we talking about here? Think about 2 Samuel eleven two. 2 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, it says, and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. So this is David and Bathsheba. If you think about this passage, it's not lust to be a man or a woman created by God with desires. It's not lust to go for a walk and see someone accidentally. It's not lust to think someone is beautiful. It's lust when the glance turns into a gaze and it goes beyond just attraction and appreciation of beauty. Our imagination runs wild. And then you keep reading, David sent for Bathsheba and lust led to adultery and adultery led to murder. What looked like life ended up in death and that's how sin works. When Jesus talks about looking at someone with lustful intent, he's not condemning healthy desire. He's condemning the over-desire, the disordered desire of lust. Think about lust as craving what God has forbidden. And so there's a form of greed here. We're not content with what we have. And I think if we're honest, a lot of times we're angry that God hasn't given us what we want. But like other forms of greed, lust leaves us empty because a person can't satisfy a heart that was made for God. Lust is also a form of idolatry because it goes beyond the healthy desire and takes these sexual desires and makes them more important than God himself. That's what life becomes about. So lust worships a God who can't save us or deliver us and we become twisted in that idolatry and our eyes and our hands and our imaginations, all these good gifts of God become servants of sin. If you feel the darkness of that, I want to add to it, but for a reason. I want to contrast biblical love in marriage. We could call it what the love of Christ looks like with lust. And the reason I want to do that is I want us to see the beauty of the Lord. And I want to compare that with the ugliness of sin because my desire is that we would see Christ so beautiful that we would actually have the desire to turn away from what is ugly that we often think is beautiful. So here are a few points. Biblical love is a covenant relationship, but lust is a consumer relationship. Lust turns us into consumers. Our relationships become like transactions and people become vendors. You think about the stores we visit and we keep a relationship going as long as it's meeting our needs at an acceptable price to us. But then we leave the door open to exit because we're always looking for a newer model or a sweeter deal. What if someone better, more beautiful comes along? See, lust wants the benefits, but not the commitment, because if the relationship starts to cost too much, we want to get out. Lust wants to enjoy one kind of union without the total union that God intended. Biblical love is a warm and life-giving fire, and lust says, I want that fire, but not in the fireplace, thinking that maybe somehow we won't get burned. God didn't create us to give our body to someone and not our whole life or to receive someone else's body and not receive his or her whole life. So biblical love commits and receives the whole person. And that's what marriage is. And that kind of love honors the Lord and it honors the person because it reflects the Lord's love that, that he wants to give himself to us fully and he actually wants all of us. Lust refuses to commit because it's never satisfied. So our relationships start to feel like a constant audition and we've got this constant fear that we're going to get cut. And then you wonder, why is dating so discouraging in our culture? Because lust doesn't honor the Lord or the person. It goes against the grain of God's creation. 
Biblical love is also personal, but lust is impersonal. In lust, we think we want a person, but we really don't. We, we want a pleasure, and a person is just a tool to get that. There are people here who thought someone loved them somewhere along the way, but it turned out to be lust. And that's incredibly painful because it's very impersonal. And lust leads to a life of fantasies, and that cripples us for real relationships. You think about pornography. It's just an example of false intimacy. There's this illusion of a relationship, but the person is really just pixels on a screen. There's no real relationship with a real person. But if we want intimacy and we're afraid of being rejected, then it's easy to settle for the counterfeit. Pornography is the worst preparation for a healthy marriage because it trains us to be selfish. But marriage is calling us to sacrifice. Biblical love leads to this life of real relationships and forces us to abandon the fantasies because there's a real relationship with a real person. Of course, that's more complicated, but it's real. And because it's real, there's the threat of rejection. But in a Christian marriage, we make these promises to one another to love one another and never leave. So our spouse actually becomes a reminder that even at our worst, God doesn't reject us. He loves us and he won't leave us or forsake us. Biblical love worships God, but lust worships idols. I've already said lust is a form of idolatry, but think about where that leads us. It leads us to move from pleasure to pleasure and relationship to relationship. It's this endless search, ever-increasing desire, ever-diminishing pleasure. And so it takes more and more to get less and less, and we have to go to darker and darker places. That's the downward spiral of sin and addiction. And then we wake up one day and we're doing things that we never would have imagined. See, lust looks like freedom, but it ends up being slavery. In John 8, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin doesn't come to you saying, hey, I want to make you a slave. It comes to you saying, this is going to be good. This is going to be life. But if you've struggled with lust, you know what a horrible master it is. Think about this. Jesus is the only master who won't ultimately enslave us. And following Jesus may look like slavery at times, but ultimately only he can set us free. Last point in the comparison. Biblical love is a foretaste of heaven, but lust is a foretaste of hell. Jesus talks about hell in verses 28 and 29, and in the Greek, the word is Gehenna. It's a common word for hell. But Gehenna was an actual place outside Jerusalem. This is really interesting because it was a dump where people took their trash to be burned. So think about what that dump would have been like with the trash and the burning. Think about the decay, the disintegration, the destruction in that place. That's the picture Jesus gives us of hell. And when we give ourselves to lust, we experience decay and disintegration and destruction because it's life without God. And that destroys us and it destroys the relationships that we have. But when we seek to honor God and others in our relationships, we can experience the restoration and the integrity and the healing of life in Christ. If we're single, we come to see that there's actually greater joy in the Lord than in the pleasures of sin. And in marriage, intimacy can become a reminder of the gospel that we could be completely vulnerable and totally accepted by this person in our life is a foretaste of heaven 
where we'll see Jesus face to face and know him and be known. So you've heard this contrast between love and lust, and I just want you to ask yourself, which one looks like life and which one looks like death? If you imagine being a young man or young woman, some of you are fairly young in here today, You've got 50 to 75 years out in front of you. The world is telling you, do whatever you want with whomever you want for as long as you want. That's how you should do this part of your life. Jesus is telling you, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. And if you're single, he would tell you, be content and trust that I'm good. Wait on me. And even if you wait a lifetime, I will be enough for you. And you can say with David in Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So over the next 50 to 75 years, which vision is gonna lead to less pain and less regret? Which vision is gonna lead to more joy, deeper relationships? I think it's obvious, but has the Lord convinced your heart that he is better? That lust is a disordered desire. Sexual sin isn't soaring, (laughs) it's settling. Now, there are so many conversations we could have and should have about lust. There are very specific things to talk about with a pastor or counselor or friend or small group, but those conversations won't move the needle until the Lord convinces our hearts that he is better than our disordered desire. So the last thing I want us to see is the path to pure joy. If you look at verses 29 and 30, this is where Jesus talks strangely If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus not saying? I don't think he's saying that you should literally gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. People have literally done that in history. I think they were wrong. Because Jesus wouldn't command us to harm ourselves and because removing our right eye and our right hand still leaves a left eye and a left hand and the eyes of our heart, right? And what he's talking about is a greater righteousness, a change of the heart. So what gets to the heart? Jesus is saying we should be deadly serious about the danger of lust. He actually suggests, I think, that some will hold on to their lust even if it means hell now or forever. So he's telling us, do whatever it takes to get this sin out of your life. John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We're always tempted to minimize and rationalize, but we can't measure the seriousness of sin by how we feel about it. We should measure the seriousness of sin by the cross. If Jesus had to come and live and die on a cross, How serious is sin? And how serious are we about lust? Is lust like a cute little pet that we just care for and feed? Or is it a horrible monster that we know we have to kill? It's not a silly question because lust is offering its fleeting pleasures. The Lord is offering eternal pleasures. How are we going to respond? We want a quick fix. We want to listen to a sermon or read a book and be changed. We want magic. But Jesus actually says in the Gospels, come follow me. It's not a quick fix. It's a lifelong journey. It's not a door. It's a path. It's this path we walk with Jesus and with his people. It's this path to pure joy, but it's a path of repentance. 
if we want to be serious about killing sin, he's given us everything we need, his word, prayer, his people. And I want to talk about how these things help us walk this path of repentance. So first, let's talk about God's people being the church, our life together. The path of repentance is a path we never travel alone. I heard this some years ago, was struck by it. The Christian life is personal, but it's not private. Jesus calls us to himself. It's a personal relationship, but he also calls us into his body. We're part of a family. There's this scene in the Planet Earth documentary where lions are hunting elephants at night. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's these big elephants and they're sticking together. They know they're in trouble and they're trying to form a ring around this baby elephant because the baby elephant obviously is smaller. And the lions won't attack this big herd of elephants. But in the darkness and in the confusion, eventually the baby elephant gets separated from the big ones and the lions pounce. And 1 Peter 5 says that our enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour He can't bring all of us down at once, is my sense. So he's looking for a lonely, vulnerable person to devour. You think about how loneliness is an epidemic in our culture, and you realize, wow, we're pretty vulnerable to something like lust. When it comes to your Christian life, are you essentially walking alone? Years ago, there was this high school student who would call me when he was tempted, and it was so healthy, in my opinion, but it was so rare. He was the only one who did it. He was honest about his struggle with me and he reached out for help. So I would remind him, hey, Jesus is better and it's worth fighting your lust. And we would do that battle using the word of God in prayer. So the question is, does anyone know you like that? Have you invited someone in? And is that relationship about more than just confessing that you have a problem? Is it about repentance and killing that sin and growing in Christ that you might have that better joy? This may be the first step for some of you today. Tell someone, come out of hiding, pursue this kind of friendship. If you're a man, you could join a men's integrity group. Stop trying to do this alone though, is the main point. We need to help each other in the areas where the battle rages. Everyone's different. So do we know where we're weak, what our triggers are? Are we strengthening each other in those areas? And when we're tempted, are we reaching out? Are we available when someone else is tempted? When it comes to technology and what we set before our eyes, we can also help each other discern what's wise and what's foolish. A lot of times we're using devices or watching things just because, just because they exist. Instead of asking, Lord, is this good? Does this help me love you and others? Is this glorifying to you? And we we can fill up every spare moment of our lives, like looking at the face of a screen when we could be seeking the face of our God. The latest technology can become so important to us that we can't imagine life without it. And that's scary. Technology is an ingredient usually in our lust struggle. So we need each other to learn how to use it wisely. And when necessary, we need each other to do whatever it takes with it because sin is serious and Jesus is better. What I'm saying about the church is it is an incredible gift to be part of the body of Christ. Don't take that for granted. Let's walk the path of repentance together. I want to end by talking about the word and prayer. You think about why are the word and prayer so important in repentance? Because repentance is a 180. You're going this way. You're walking in sin. I'm turning and I'm going towards Jesus. It's a turning. It's a change. And without God's word and prayer, I don't know how we do that. Because the word shows us our sin. It shows us our adulterous hearts. And we can pray, Lord, help me to hate my sin. 
and turn away from it. And then as we prayed in our confession, a heartfelt sorrow can start to grow. The word also shows us our savior, our faithful bridegroom, and we can pray, Lord, help me to turn to you and rest in your love. And the Lord can begin to give us a heartfelt joy that we actually are his. So a real relationship with God looks like repentance. With the Spirit's help, there's a dying with Christ to our old way of life, and there's a rising with Christ to a new way of life. From disobedience to obedience, from fleeting pleasures to real pleasures, however you want to say it. And he's given us his word and prayer that we might walk this path with him and with each other. So are we spending time daily with the lover of our souls? If you think about this, if we're walking in darkness, it's the opposite of repentance. We're cultivating a relationship with sin. We're turning away from God and turning towards sin. We're feeding the sin and we're starving our soul for God. So if we want to turn, we need to starve the sin and feed our hunger for God. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does making provision mean? I think about my wife and how she makes provision for a day trip for us, packing lunches and clothes and everything that we're going to need so that we can go out into the country, let's say, on a 100-degree day and not just die. <laughs> We've got everything we need. She makes provision for us. Are we making provision for lust, giving it everything it needs to thrive? Or are we starving it and then feeding our hunger for God? You think about a soldier on the battlefield. If he doesn't have his weapon— he is a sitting duck. And we're the same if we don't have the sword of the Spirit. If we want to be killing sin, this is our only offensive weapon. So when temptation comes, do we have the Word? Have we feasted on it? Is it in our hearts? Because if it is, we can say like Jesus did when he was tempted, it is written. And we can fight the lies with the truth. Verses like Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Or Psalm 119, 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Before his conversion, Augustine, Matt mentioned earlier, and we didn't compare notes, <laughs> Before his conversion, Augustine was consumed with lust. He actually described Carthage in the fourth century as a hissing cauldron of lust, and I assume he jumped into it. But the Lord saved Augustine, and that should give us incredible hope because God takes lovers of sin and turns them into lovers of Christ. And I want you to hear how Augustine described what happened in his heart. He says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. Sovereign joy, that's the nuclear weapon on this path of repentance because it tilts the battlefield because it actually gets to the heart because we can open the word and we can pray whatever we're looking at. Lord, drive these fruitless joys from me and take their place and be my sovereign joy. Shouldn't Jesus be more beautiful to us than our sin? It comes down to that. That's the battle. Are we in the word and prayer like that? 
Finally, we need the word because of the good news that it preaches to us, the gospel, whether it's lust or something else. Every day there's a battle. Every day we have needs. And every day our Savior is there and he has made provision for those needs. Jesus doesn't want us to walk away today just saying, I'm resolved to fight harder on my own. He wants us to admit that we can't do it, that we are not pure like this and ask for his help. He wants us to be poor in spirit so that we can receive his grace. Think about the gospel. Our sin is so great that Jesus had to die for us, but his love is so great that he was willing to die for us. You let that sink in and it begins to change things. You know, no one understands lust like Jesus. You may not think that, but Hebrews 4.15 says he's our high priest. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way like we are, but he never sinned. So Jesus knows the power of our temptation more than we do because he never gave in. He never looked lustfully. He knew the pure joy that comes from being pure in heart and seeing God. And then as the pure sacrifice, he went to the cross to pay for all the sins of his impure people. And he can wash away the guilt and he can break the power of sin in our lives so that we can know the joy of being united with him. If you are his, know that he loves you and he has covered you in his righteousness. And he's making you and all of his people a pure and spotless bride. I think sometimes it's just helpful to imagine where we're going. Imagine the joy of seeing someone beautiful and there's no lust. They're simply loving them as a brother or sister in Christ. That's where we're headed, to a heaven with no lust, only love and praise and thanksgiving by his grace, we can actually begin to experience that kind of pure joy in this life, little by little. So wherever you are this morning, look to Jesus, come to Jesus, turn away from your sin and turn to him. Receive his forgiveness and then walk in his light and rest in the joy that you're united with him forever. And the fruitless joys that you once feared to lose, I pray that you can let those go because Jesus wants to drive them from you and take their place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our faithful bridegroom. We're amazed that you would not give up on us, but you would love us and want us to be united with you. And I pray today, Lord, that you would help us to see the beauty of Christ, the lover of our soul. And that you would show us by your spirit what is the next step to do in dependence on you. That we might lean into the church. That we might give ourselves to your word and to prayer. That you might change us and make us new. That we would experience the pure joy of seeing you and then walking with you in our relationships. So Lord, help us. We can't do this on our own. And we pray that you would be our strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.